following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Colossians 3 verses 15 to 17 shows us what it looks like to grow in Christ. We're going to look at that today. It shows how we ought to purposefully yield to Jesus. And so this is what we're going to do today. So I want you to find Colossians 3 in your Bibles and please stand with me as I read God's word. And we're going to see in this passage how Christ's sanctifying work calls you to purposeful action. And basically, if there's no engagement in your life in the process, then nothing of spiritual value will happen. So I'm going to read the inspired and errant infallible word of God. It's the only perfect part of the worship service. I'm going to read Colossians 3, verses 15 to 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. We thank you that you've given us your word, and wherever we go in the Bible, Lord, we know that you will teach us, you will comfort us, you will correct us, you will change us, and we just pray for your will to be done in this time. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're here in Colossians 3, and some of you thought I was starting Ecclesiastes today, didn't you? Some of you thought that. Uh, We're going to start that later, another time. Today, just kind of standalone message, and then uh, I just want you to know next week I'll be at a class at the Master's Seminary, so I'll be gone. Uh, The week after, I'm also going to be gone because I'm going to be at Grace Rancho on the 19th, and at Grace Rancho on the 19th, we're going to have a celebration service of their growth and and them being a fully-fledged church with their own elders and uh, doing their own budget and all of that, so we're going to rejoice. A bunch of us will be out there that day. But then on the 26th, I'm going to come back, and we're not starting Ecclesiastes then either. We're going to do a six-week series on the Trinity, and you'll know why as you start to hear this sermon. And then after that, we'll start Ecclesiastes. We already have these, uh, these journals, these really cool Ecclesiastes journals all waiting for you in the office. So I know you can't wait for that, uh, but for today, Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. And I know that, um, I know this personally, but it's easy uh, to feel small and insignificant at times. I think uh, all of us could, could agree to that. I know that it's easy to think, oh, I'm just one person, or you could say we're just one small church in the whole scheme of things. But what you notice, and you see this in Colossians 3, that God cares about his people, every one of his people. No matter if they're notable, no matter if they're just, you know, way back in a back alley somewhere, all hidden, and no one ever notices them. And and the interesting thing about it is that this letter to the Colossians was written to a church that wasn't the most notable church in its time. In fact, there are two churches that are named in the letter that were more prominent, Laodicea and Hierapolis. So here's Colossae, not the most important church on the map, not the most important city at the time, But God cared deeply enough to have the Apostle Paul write to them and to encourage them and to uh, bolster their faith 
uh, regarding the preeminence of Christ and their part in God's plan and how they can be protected uh, from false teaching. There was, like there is now, there was opposition to the gospel message. There was false teaching infiltrating the church, and so they needed help. You look at the sweep of Colossians, it's a quick letter, it's right to the point. But Colossians 1 is all about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 is all about God's people being protected from false teaching. And then Colossians 3, where we're at today, is about God's people progressing in the faith, basically making progress in their faith, and you'll notice, if you read through Colossians 3, you'll notice there's a putting on, there's a taking off, kind of like a picture of clothes, like maybe at Christmas you got some new, a new uh, you know, set of clothes and, or some shoes, and you put them on, and it's just a freshness to them, right? Well, this is about uh, living your new life in Christ, like growing into your identity in Christ and using the example of putting on new clothes. But here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I know me, it's very easy as you, you know, you want to grow in Christ, you want to make progress, but it's really easy to feel like you're slipping back into old habits and going back into old ways. And so, you know, you want to walk in newness of life, but then this is what happens in my life. I get a fresh glimpse of my depravity, how sinful I am, how, how warped my thinking is, and and it's easy to wonder if you've truly been made new. I mean, this is for believers. Like a believer can think, like, am I really saved? And am I really fulfilling my purpose? And is anyone even noticing the changes that God has brought about in my life? And I feel like I'm taking, you know, one step forward and 15 steps back. You ever feel like that? A lot of people have these kind of questions. And a Christian needs to know this. You have been redeemed by the substitutionary shed blood, the precious substitutionary shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he died for your sins on the cross, and he bought your freedom. But here's what we do. We go back into the shackles of sin, don't we? We, we, we know that we're free in Christ, but we go back into the shackles of sin. And I know we all like a fresh start. So hey, starting a new decade is great, right? Starting a new year is great. Just starting a new day is great. I mean, I seriously, I wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Lord, that I get to be here today and, and do what I'm called to do. You could, you could do this. You could say, well, you know, I'm frustrated with my sinfulness. But I'm going to throw myself on God's mercy. I'm going to do what Romans 8.1 says. I'm going to remind myself of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to celebrate that. And that would be a good thing. Or else you could actually take the recipe for disaster that a lot of people take. You get frustrated with your sinfulness, but then you start holding on to ideas that are not biblical. And instead of turning to the Bible, you turn to false ideas about Jesus and the Bible. And it's all too common. If it was a one-off, it'd be like, oh yeah, one person did that once. But it is all too common to get frustrated in your sinfulness, even in the Christian life, and then start attaching yourself to ideas that are found nowhere in the Bible. In fact, in 2018, there was a survey done of 3,000 American people that many of them say, I'm a Christian, and many of them say, I'm an evangelical Christian. They use that that delineation, 
This was done in 2018. It was also done in 2016. It was also done in 2014. So I'm guessing this year it might be done again. But Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research uh, got together and surveyed 3,000 people, and they found that, there, uh, that American Christians have a lot of favorite false teachings about what they believe about God, the Bible, salvation, and ethics. And what they found, and this was startling, was that people are pretty casual about what they believe, and they're unconcerned with accurate belief, and that they're more into subjective feelings than objective truth. In fact, here's what they found. I'll just give you a smattering. You can't go through the whole thing. It's too long. But 32% of the evangelicals say that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. They reject the Bible's teaching on several crucial points. 53% of American Christians say the smallest sin doesn't deserve eternal damnation. 58% said that worshiping alone or with your family is a valid replacement for regularly being a part of a local church. 50%, more than 50% said this, this is weird, that they said the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Those are all things that are not accurate, okay? Uh, And and strangely, really surprisingly, uh, many evangelicals are confused, get this, about the person of Jesus Christ. That they're not clear about Jesus. In fact, 52% of the people said, oh yeah, we know that people are basically good and that God accepts the worship of all religions. 51% said that. But here's here's the the, the most shocking one. This is the one that just jumped off the page to me. 78% of the people surveyed said this, Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. That's heresy. Uh, all these beliefs are contrary to the Bible. I mean, but, but 97% of evangelicals said, uh, yeah, we believe that God uh, is in three persons. So they kind of gave assent to the Trinity. Uh, you wonder why I'm going to be pre- preaching on the Trinity. 78% say, but Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. Now, those beliefs don't fit. They are mutually exclusive. Uh, that's the Arian heresy repackaged. What they found is a lot of people today that call themselves Christian are Arians. They're not Trinitarian, truly. Um, so almost everyone is saying, yeah, we believe you know, that God is triune, but at the same time, well, we believe that Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. That was a view taught by the ancient heretic Arius. It was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It was condemned again at the Council of Constantinople in 381. But increasingly, people who say they believe the Bible believe that. Well, people are confused about Jesus. People are confused about the Holy Spirit. So we need to have a series on the Trinity. Because by the way, you can't become a Christian without a triune God. You can't grow in Christ without the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What they were noticing in this survey is that a lot of people have zeal without knowledge. Like they're like, oh, we want to worship Jesus, but we really don't know what we believe. Here's what they said. They said the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. People who say they're Christians say this. Then they said, many view God as unconcerned with my day-to-day decisions. So you get frustrated over your sinfulness and you're believing just whatever you hear out there. Frustration, 
plus false ideas equal a recipe for shipwreck, shipwreck in your faith. Without an, under, an accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what he does, you're going to flounder and you're going to fall prey to false ideas. Now, a lot of people will then find it very easy, relatively easy, to downgrade Jesus and to disregard the word of God, to devalue the word of God. And then what's going to happen? Life's just going to snowball on you. If you're holding to false ideas about God in the Bible and you're frustrated over your own sinfulness... And then we get to the, the book of Colossians, and, and the Christians that Paul was writing to in Colossae were being hounded by heresies, and, and hounded about heresies about Jesus. Epaphras, the one who started the church in Colossae, he arrives in Rome with disturbing news about the presence of some heretical teaching that was threatening the well-being of the church because that's what false teaching does. The church at Colossae had had started during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, and Paul had never been there. But Epaphras, who saved during the visit to Ephesus, starts the church, and several years later, a dangerous teachings arise and threaten the church, and the teachings at that time were unidentified with any particular system. It had elements of what came to be known as Gnosticism, where they will say God is good, but matter is evil. They said about Jesus that he's merely one of a series of emanations descending from God and that he is less than God. It it led them to deny the humanity of Christ. And then they said that there's a secret higher knowledge above scripture that was necessary for enlightenment and for salvation. And these things were getting put into the church. And Epaphras was so concerned about this heresy that he took the long trip to Rome and Paul's a prisoner there in Rome, and he he goes and visits Paul. Paul writes Colossians from prison in Rome. It's one of the prison epistles. He writes it between AD 60 and 62. He wrote it uh, from prison along with uh, the other prison epistles, Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible, you'll notice that, that, that Ephesians and Colossians seem similar. They have some similarities, but they also have some dramatic differences. Uh, Colossians is right to the point, just blunt, and then Ephesians is more in detail, more conversational. Ephesians is about the church built by Christ. Colossians is about Christ, the supreme Lord of the church. In the Colossian heresy, one writer put it this way, it was a doctrine of God and salvation that cast a cloud over the glory of Jesus Christ. You don't want to cast a cloud over the glory of Jesus Christ. So what Colossians does, it, and this is everything we see today in these three verses we're going to look at, is built upon what Colossians says about Jesus. Colossians proclaims the absolute sufficiency and supremacy and preeminence of Jesus Christ. In fact, one writer put it this way, it's Paul's full-length portrait of Christ. These are the kind of things that Colossians says about Jesus in chapter 1, he is God's son, the object of the Christian's faith, the redeemer, the image of God, the Lord of creation, the head of the church, the reconciler of the universe, Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 says that in him dwells all the fullness of God, that under him every power and authority must bow, that he is the essence of the mystery of God, that in him all of God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. 
that he is the standard by, all, that by which all spiritual teaching is to be measured, that, that the reality of the truth foreshadowed by the regulations and rituals of the Old Testament are found in Christ. We see in chapter 2 that by his cross, he, he conquered the cosmic powers of evil. You get into chapter three, and it tells us that after his resurrection, he is enthroned at the right hand of God. And now a believer's life is hidden with Christ in God, and that Christ is our life. And that when he appears, we also will appear with him in glory. But we're living now on earth, frustrated with our sin, and having to battle false teaching. The central idea Colossians is summed up in Charles Wesley's hymn, just one line. Thou, O Christ, are all I want. More than all in you I find. In Colossians 3, we we read that believers in Christ have died and risen spiritually with Christ and that those who are saved are to live in the realm of the things above where Christ is seated at God's right hand in a position of authority. We are to fix our minds on the things above. We're to seek the will of God. We're not to seek sinful things. But what are we battling with every single day? Sinful things and choosing sinful things. We are being called in Colossians 3 to live in harmony with our new life in Christ. And this is a call to every believer. To every believer. We're talking about a lifestyle that is patterned after Jesus Christ. That Christ is all and in all, and he is our life. It's like Paul said to the Philippians, to me, uh, to live is Christ. He said to the Galatians, Christ lives in me. You grow in Christ? You want to grow in Christ? You want to uh, combat falsehood? You must purposefully yield to Christ. This is the message of these three verses today. You must allow, and here's our outline for today really, verse 15, you must allow the peace of Christ to rule in you. And verse 16, you must allow the word of Christ to dwell richly in you. And verse 17, you must worship Jesus. You must allow the peace of Christ to rule in you. You must allow the word of Christ to dwell richly in you. And you must worship Jesus. Let's look at verse 15. The peace of Christ is to be ruling. It's, it, it begins this way, and let. Let is not a suggestion. We use it like a suggestion. Will you please let me in the door? The door is locked. Will you please let me in? Or would you please let me you know, hang out and go to your party or whatever? Uh, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is an imperative. You must do this if you want to grow in Christ. You want to um, grow in Christ, you must align with this, you must depend on this, you must yield to this, you must surrender to Christ, and it is a choice that you have to make. Every one of you are faced with this choice today. It says, let, a command, an imperative, let the peace of Christ. This is referring to God's call in salvation and the resulting peace that you experience as a believer in Christ and the secure rest that you have when Philippians 4, 7 says the peace of Christ will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus because of the eternal peace you have in Christ. 
that is outlined so beautifully in Romans 5.1 that says, having been justified, having been justified, there's a one-time legal declaration of your freedom with ongoing results. Having been justified, we have peace with God. That's not changeable. That's not going to change, that peace you have with God. It's an external, observable, objective reality. The Bible is very clear. God is said to be at war with every human being because of man's sinful rebellion. And so the amazing act of justification means that if you're a believer, you're trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross where he shed his precious blood in your place, substituting himself for you, and you believe he died and was buried and rose on the third day and that he, he's at the right hand of God now and he's coming back and you trust your soul to Jesus, what it means is that your war with God is over. You're his friend. You're no longer his enemy. He made you his friend. And I'll tell you, God takes your salvation very seriously to the point of precious shed blood. You have one holy God and multitudes of unholy people and a great exchange happens. Substitution of the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ, for sinful ones in order to accomplish redemption from evil powers, redeeming people. There has been a substitution. Pet peeve of mine is if I go to a restaurant and the menu says no substitutions. Because I like to make up my own little thing. You know, can we put this with this? You can put my name on the menu if you want, but I kind of want that. When you see that on a menu, by the way, it, it signifies no flexibility on the part of management. It's the sole discretion of the owner to say no substitutions. Here is God, the the creator of all, the Lord of the universe, saying my plan from the beginning of time was to substitute Jesus in your place. That signifies his sovereignty. That signifies that sole discretion is at his disposal. And you are either, today, you are either accepted in the beloved, as, as Colossians tells us, or you are rejected. In fact, if you're the person that's here today hearing these words and you've heard the gospel but you, you've ignored it or you reject Jesus or you despise Jesus or you mock the gospel or you otherwise reject Christ, then Charles Spurgeon has some words for you. Here's what he said. Go down to the pit if you deliberately choose to do so. But know this, Christ was preached to you and you would not have him. You were invited to come to him, but you turned your backs on him. You choose for yourself your own eternal destruction. And then he says this, God grant that you may repent of such a choice for Christ's sake. Commanded to let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts. You must let the peace of God exercise its rule, bear its influence. In fact, rule here means to act as an arbiter. Literally, the idea is to act like an umpire. 
what the umpire says goes. I know we have you know, calls overturned all the time in sports now because we have instant replay, but the Bible doesn't have instant replay. God's rule is not gonna be overturned. Um, we're, we're, to be, we're to be allowing the peace that God gives believers to rule in our hearts. Now, what are we struggling with every single day? Not having the peace that passes understanding. Not, not feeling the peace with God. Not having peace with other people because we're battling our sin. Christians are called to peaceful unity in the body of Christ. To live with a desire for unity. The spirit produces the bond of peace. We were called to this peace, as it says here, in one body. Notice that, look at verse 15. You were called in one body. The sphere of the unity is peace that's part of our common life in Christ. So it's the reminder of a common zeal that actually should characterize us, that all in the body of Christ should show in to see that this peace prospers. That the peace is ruling in the group. This is plural. The you, you have to apply it to your own heart. But the you here is plural. It's to the whole church. Let the peace of Christ rule in the whole assembly. No striving, no conflict. Thankful for each other. Thankful for life. uh, Breaking bad habits. Building one another up. You, you were called in one body. Uh, the unity of God's people is possible because of the peace God bestows upon every believer. And by the way, peace and love are the perfect bond of unity. God fosters this attitude in the redeemed, in the heart, in tune with teamwork in the family of God. Uh, the unity is peace that is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And love that binds everything together. You got your binding agent right there. True teamwork. Why would God be saying that to grow as he intends upon the foundation of Christ that you would need to live in harmony with a group of people. It's because God never intended for you to go off and be a lone wolf, but to live in harmony in one body so that when you're tempted to say and do things that are gonna harm other people, every time you wanna look out for your own interests, You look to Christ instead. You look to the word of God instead and say, I'm gonna do what that says. If you disagree with other believers, you do so agreeably. You make sure you remain on good terms. You you honestly wanna give thanks to God. You notice it says be thankful and be thankful. You wanna be able to give thanks to God with a clear conscience. If your conscience is bugging you right now, it might signal that God is tenderizing your heart to free you up for greater connection in the body of Christ and service to others. Be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In this one body, and be thankful. Now we're in the realm of prayer. The prayer permeating the life of a believer. The the total lifestyle being proposed is is showing out in in the word and prayer and, and people. That you pour out your heart to God in prayer and in petition and intercession for other believers even, and, and be thankful. That's, you, you feel, when you're thankful, that's an attitude that fosters peace. Thankful isn't a moment, it's a lifestyle. It's a preset gratefulness. Now we know what our preset default is. It's to be opposed to what is right. 
Regeneration gives you new desires, and your old nature fights as hard as it can against it. Why are we being told in 1 John to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil if it wasn't an issue? But when you embrace the peace of Christ, it is sweet to your soul. And when you see the peace of Christ in others, it's sweeter. God is at work in his people. Just last Thursday, we were, we, our elders got together for our monthly meeting, and we were talking about what God is doing amongst the body here at Grace, and we were like, praise God, we're thankful. There, there's new believers. God is adding to his church. Uh, people are getting sanctified. People are applying the word of God to their, to their situations. They're experiencing victory in Christ. Uh, we've been encouraged by testimonies, whether they're public or private. Uh, we've got ministry to children and youth and adults and men and women. And uh, a lot of people are growing and people are serving. They're jumping in to serve in all sorts of um, organized or organic ways in various Bible ministries in the church. We're developing leaders. We're, we're identifying and training men to be future elders. We've got men and women to serve as deacons. We're excited to see what kind of impact upon the body that gives. We're doing biblical counseling where people actually say, hey, I need help, and I want to I be able to be helped in a biblical way. Uh, please show me in the Bible how I can have healthy relation with Jesus and others, and actually people are doing that. They're seeking help from other people with the, indwelt by the Holy Spirit with the Bible and, and are equipped to do this, helping each other. We're, we, we talk about our growing dependence on the Lord. I mean, more than ever. I mean, if it isn't more than ever, we're in trouble, but we're seeing that there's nothing of value that will happen spiritually a, a good apart from God's enabling power. I mean, we think of our outreach. We think of our missions. Near and far, ministry partners near and far. We're just continuing strong connections and, and forging new ones, especially in this community. And why? Because the peace of Christ is ruling in us and we are thankful. Christ lives in you. Believers, if you're a believer, Christ lives in you. Aren't you blown away by that? The testimony of Jesus? You should rightly so be blown away by the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, which is why John was on the island of Patmos, by the way. Well, here's what happens. You see what's going on and you... You're frustrated with your failures, you're frustrated with your sin, you look to Christ, and you get some victories, you get some defeats, but what you notice is even in the best of times, when the peace is just flowing and things just seem to be gelling, and sometimes it feels like it just happens and lasts for a moment, right? But what you find is this, you are not completely fulfilled here on earth by that peace and by the good things you do that are in line with that peace. You are not completely fulfilled by it. Because if you were, you'd be in the new Jerusalem. See, what happens is you have to think of life as prep for heaven. Life on earth is prep for heaven. And sometimes you feel like you're living on hell on earth. But then you see glimpses, little foretastes of heaven, foretastes of Eden 2.0, a foretaste of the new Jerusalem, and you're like, wow, there is a world that God is remaking, and I'm a part of it, and it thrills my soul. The peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. Let's move on to verse 16. Talk about the word of Christ. Well, the word of Christ is to dwell in you richly. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Remember, it's a command, not a suggestion. 
And it leads to a renewed mind. It enables sanctification, uh, progressive transformation, uh, the word of God dwelling in you richly. That word richly means abundantly, plentifully, a lot, permeating influence, aroma. One of my favorite restaurants ever is far away from here, so I don't go there very often. I think I've been there five times. Cafe Aroma. And you go in, and here's what they do. The first thing they, they do is when you go on in, they bring a white bowl, pretty good white bowl with some good rim around it, and it's filled with olive oil. But that's not all. It's filled with raw garlic, too, as much as you want. And what happens is I get as much as I want, and they'll give me more if I want. And, and what happens, you get the raw garlic in there, and I'm telling you, it just comes out of your pores, right? But it's plentiful. It's, there's a beauty in that, I'm telling you. Not for everyone who's around me afterwards, but um, I told first hour this, and I, I, maybe I'll just tell you too. So here's what I did last night, because you, know, you feel like you're getting a little scratchy throat, you feel like you're you know, getting a cold. You just get a, a clove of garlic. Clove of garlic, you unwrap it, put it in your mouth, you chew it. You swallow it, you drink some water. If you're weaker, you put some honey and lemon with it. <laughs> but I'm telling you, when that goes in, it dwells richly. <laughs> Ezekiel says, eat the word. Uh, it has a picture in the prophecy of eating the word. Like, eat as much as you want. You know when you go to all-you-can-eat restaurant, you're like, look at the beauty of this, of this, uh, of this offering. Wow. And sometimes we can overconsume and be gluttonous, but guess what? You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it will not coddle overconsumption, it will not coddle gluttony. I know that there are times when we say, well, I'm taking in the word, but I need to give it out. That's exactly what this verse is saying. The, the word is powerful, and, and the word is not to be wasted, and the word will have its way, Isaiah 55 says that, but don't squander it. Don't take it for granted. Relish the word. Cherish the word. Let it dwell in you richly. Let it have its way in you. And by the way, you can't contain it. It contains you. It constrains you. The word of God has to make its way out. The word of God is the only perfect part of your life. And God is using it to perfect every believer. You gotta take it in daily. Psalm 1 says meditate on it day and night. Consume it. Psalm 19 says it's better, it's sweeter, it's stronger. And what are you to do with it? Stay in verse 16 with me. It says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, and as it's dwelling in you richly, you're then teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's a command. Let the word richly dwell in you. The adverb richly depicts this lavish manner that God has blessed his people with his word. It's a fitting description of how God just gives us the valuable word. Proverbs 2 says the word of God is like gold and silver. Psalm 119 says it's like great riches. Well, something of such wealth, it should, it should have a rich residence in us. It means let the word of God live in you. Give it space. Give it a good place, not a little corner, not a little cubby hole, but give it your whole heart. Let it have free reign on your whole heart. Here is a generous God who is giving the word generously to his people, and what we see is that we are to generously give it out. 
James 1.22 says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. It, it's like this, like you're sick, go to the doctor, get some medicine, and let the medicine do its work. You need a surgery, go lay on the table, and let the, the, the doctor do what they do. Trust the expert. It's like you got to have this procedure done. It's like you got to get the word of God into you. you got to receive it, and you got to react to it. And it, remember, it's you, plural, body of believers, group of believers, sharing with one another the word coming from individual believers where it dwells, bearing upon the group, bringing it to bear upon the group. Let the word out. People like to send Christmas and New Year's greetings out, right? I don't get a New Year's greeting that says, I hope you have a horrible year. It's, hey, I hope you have a great year, right? Giving out, you know, Christians put out Bible verses in their greetings. They want the word out. They want to talk about Jesus. Freely you've received, freely give. Practice blessing other people. Share in the fellowship, share in the friendship, but also share in the joy and also share in the pain. In fact, Joel Beakey just wrote this recently. I thought it was really good. He said, it's a good custom to wish each other Happy New Year. He goes, but too often, we mean by Happy New Year is, I hope you stay healthy and wealthy and that you have lots of prosperity this year in everything you do. And he talked about the Reformers and the Puritans that often wish each other a blessed New Year. And blessed is the idea of, I'm blessed because I have internal happiness regardless of my circumstances. And they meant something like this. I hope that everything that comes your way by the hand of providence this year may be sanctified to you and in you through Christ so that you may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, have a firm trust in our faithful God and Father for the unknown future. There's my New Year's greeting to you. And I'll greet you with what Samuel Rutherford said as well. He said this, every day we may see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. In our fluctuations of feeling, it is well to remember that Jesus admits no change in his affections. And then he said this, your heart is not the compass that Jesus sails by. I am so glad that my heart is not the compass that Jesus sails by. God's compass is the word of God, and we are to be fully saturated with it. We are to be permeated with it so that we can do the will of God. If you're not saturated with the, will of, with the word of God, you can't do the will of God. The word should flow richly from you to others. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And it is to have an impact. You notice that it says, in all wisdom? It's done in a present tense. It's a continuing pattern of ministry that ought to show forth where believers bring out the good things that abundantly dwell within them. Teaching that covers a wide range of information, instruction, inspiration, admonition. There's an urgency to this. To transmit the truth that transforms. When you contribute like this in the body of Christ, it happens in a worship times when we gather. It happens... When we talk with one another, it happens in smaller groups. It happens in your family or in your workplace or in your school. Think about all the opportunities we have to share the word of God. Today, at, at our disposal, you can give out biblical truth just one-to-one -one with someone with the Bible open or in a text or in an email or a phone call or FaceTime. You can make a TV show about it. You can make a movie. You can make music. You can write literature or get creative or get the word of God 
out from you to others. You have a never-ending supply. You're not going to run dry. Do you notice that there are three expressions of teaching and admonishing, and they are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? A lot of people check out at this point and say, oh, it's just about the singing part of the service. That's anemic. Three expressions on a daily basis. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms would be the Old Testament Psalter, the, the Psalms, of the songs in the Old Testament. And new songs, even 1 Corinthians 14 talks about new songs that exalt God. And then you've got hymns, songs that are celebrating God and praising Him. And you think about Paul and Silas, they're in prison, Acts 16, and they're singing hymns at midnight. Paul's exhorting us here to sing. And you cannot say, I don't have a good voice, so I'm not going to sing. We're not putting you up for a solo. You just sing with everybody. We all blend in. Songs. See that? Spiritual songs. It's where you offer praise to God for who he is and what he does. It's, it's an, they're spiritual songs. They're in accord with who God is and, and how he leads his people by his spirit. You look at Acts 4.31, when believers were filled with the spirit, what happened? It says, great grace was upon them all. Sufficient grace was on them. It was evidenced by their courageousness, their bold testimony, their generosity to supply when others were in need. They were powerful. Notice the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, it doesn't matter if you can sing or not. You can sing. Maybe just not very well. You express your heart to God. And you notice here, we're singing not just to God, but to one another. Have you ever thought about that? When we gather together, we are singing the word of God. We are singing songs about Jesus. We are singing songs based on the gospel. That's why it's important, the content of what we sing. Because we are reminding each other as we sing We are hearing the voices of a gathered group and we are reminding each other and teaching each other and admonishing each other as we sing together. Is that not a wild thought? But it is something that God uses to build us up in the faith. We're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What you listen to in your music impacts your soul. We remind each other we, we sing to God, we sing to one another. We're not spectators. We are worshipers, we are edifiers, we are co-laborers, we are co-worshipers, we are co-edifiers. And so when you're not here, it's not just you that's missing out. Others are missing out on your singing of the word of God that dwells richly within us. And you notice we're to do it again with thankfulness. It's, really easy to look at these verses and go, oh, wait, wait, you got three times. Verse 15, thankfulness. Verse 16, thankfulness. Verse 17, thankfulness. Except in verse 16, it's a different word. Verse 15 and 17 both have the normal word for for thankfulness. But this is different. It's a different variation, really. The actual word is the word for grace, charis. It's literally sing with grace, in your hearts. Teach and admonish one another with grace in your hearts. Now the word for thankfulness has derivatives of grace in it, but this is pure grace. Pure grace. 
You worship in grace. You sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The riches from the word that abound in Christ that you communicate in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you're to express in grace and in gratitude to God who is the giver because genuine worship comes from your heart. It's not just when we flip a switch and come into a group where we planned to worship and we picked out songs. This is your heart is the fortress out of which your whole inner being flows. And God looks at your heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God weighs your actions. 1 Samuel 2, 3. God knows your motives. Psalm 139. And the Spirit of God is the agent of transformation. Uses the Word of God to transform us. I want you to see something here. Because I told you before that Colossians and Ephesians are are, uh, similar Go to Ephesians 5.18. I want you to see the parallel verse to Colossians 3.16. So let's remind ourselves. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, with grace in your hearts to God. Now Ephesians 5.18, you're going to hear it and you're going to be like, well, that doesn't sound like it fits. And do not get drunk with wine. So don't fill yourself with a substance that's going to control you in a way that God doesn't intend. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now being filled with the Word of God is the same as being filled with the Spirit. How do I know? Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks, verse 20, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the Word of God. It's it's a parallel thought. It's an equal thought. The the Spirit of God uses the Word to transform. The Word dwells in you richly as the Spirit of God works it out into your pores and out to bless many. Verse 16 here is is describing a, a life of worship that gives centrality to the Word of God. And I don't think I'm making a huge assumption here. But I believe that we are probably all likely in very urgent need to probably give a hundred times more weight to the word of God than we do. That you are, are likely in very urgent need to count God's word a hundred times more important than you treat it. We, we devalue the word of God when we neglect it, when we misquote it, when we use it as a weapon rather than a blessing, when we're careless about what we put into our souls. I think it's high time that we start, and, and if you're not doing this, it's high time that you start a serious, vital, daily time in the word of God and in prayer. Okay. Someone agrees. Apply the truth of God to your life. Let it dwell richly in you. When you, are, when you are most saturated with the word of God, you are most satisfied in Christ. You can share the good that God gives you from the word to bless other people. And, and if, if you never help others with God's word, you're probably spiritually sick. Like a person that walks around with pneumonia, they don't even know they're sick. The word dwelling in you transforms you. You share it with others, you see its effects upon their lives, 
and you see its effects in you and in them, and it thrills your soul as a believer. The peace of Christ ruling, the word of Christ dwelling, and then third, let's look at verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything whatsoever in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're to worship Christ. You acknowledge his lordship. That's worship. Make sure you have a fully orbed understanding of worship, not an anemic one. You give thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, you know, are you thankful? Are you grateful? Or with, with everything you've got, pour out worship to Christ on a daily basis, moment by moment. When you praise God, you please God. Don't hold back. Yield every part of your life to Christ. Do everything, it says, in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't mean you're just going around saying, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. But Jesus is always a good answer. It means that you're doing things based on who Jesus is and what he does and what he says. From the word of God. You do all in Jesus' name. You seek his honor. You seek his glory. You stay mindful of things that rip churches apart. You, 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 you stay mindful of things that spoil peace in your heart or in your home. Because I tell you, if you don't have peace in your heart or in your home, it is affecting the church. Oh no, it's not. Oh yes, it is. Everything that we do in life affects each other. Be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Uh, go, go get an a, a, a intense workout on a daily basis spiritually. Devote a lot of attention to tone your life with attitudes that are in line with the work of the Spirit of God. Uh, we, we check into social media all the time. We'll check into the Word all the time. Abide in it. Let it dwell in you. Seek it out. Find its true worth. Give, give stuff an accurate price tag. Don't operate on a worldly basis. Operate on a wordly basis. Acknowledge His Lordship, Christ's Lordship. You're practicing for eternity. What you love most, you worship. You worship what you love most. Just cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Christ clings to you. Picture a mom carrying a young child. And the young child is clinging to its mommy. Who's really holding on? Here's what it's like. We are frustrated over our sin. We must go to the, the word of God. Um, Hebrews 13 tells us we have no lasting city here. We're seeking the city to come. We're living temporary here. We're aliens here. We're sojourners. We, we seek Jesus. Uh, we, we, a believer one day will, will live uh, in the holy city, New Jerusalem, the mountain of God, Eden renewed, our forever dwelling will be with God. Now, the, the city you live in now, if that could satisfy you, you'd have reason to say, well, I'm going to seek all my sustenance and security in that city. But we know the truth as believers, only one city suffices. We seek the one to come. Worldly solutions aren't going to satisfy us. We have to operate on God's economy, um, where, where, where what he gives is perfectly secure. Uh, you, you know that when, when you're, Worshiping Jesus, your soul is at rest, and you're never more at rest than when you're worshiping Jesus. Your hope is in heaven, but you are living here. God means for your life to count for something now. There is a reason why you are here today. You are either 
wanting to align with worshiping Jesus or you're interested in aligning with worshiping Jesus. God wants you to worship Jesus now, like right now. Do everything in the name of the Je- in Je- everything in Jesus' name. Purposely yield to him. This is what these verses are telling us. That God is calling for a lifestyle and he's saying, I command you to do it and I'm going to give you the power to do it. And it's a plurality. Believers do it together. You're not alone. Christ is with you. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why I'm telling you, I love a fresh start. I love a new decade. I love a new year. I love a new day. And I rejoice in God's patience with me. I I rejoiced even as I could think this week about preaching this to you, that I could recommit myself once again every day, every moment, to glorify God through a life that's being transformed by the gospel. And it's amazing what God can do. I, I just want to leave you with this one thought about purposely yielding to Christ and what he might do. You know, as a believer, your hope is built on the solid rock of Christ. But sometimes you hit the reef. Sometimes you hit the rocks and you go into anxiety. You go into despair. You go into depression. You go into unbelief. You go into self-pity. And, and what happens in those moments is false beliefs will not help you. And we can ask this question. We can say, is there any hope for me to be made like Christ? Is there any hope for me to have any semblance of holiness in my life? And why is God even wanting me to please him? Well, it started in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and it's going to end with the New Jerusalem in Revelation. God is in the midst of restoring harmony with man that was spoiled and shattered in the fall. God cannot dwell with unholy people, and so he makes us holy to dwell with him. You notice Colossians 3.12 says, you're beloved and you're holy. There's only one way that sinful people can dwell with the holy God, and it's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's why Hebrews 12.14 says, pursue sanctification and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are looking forward to God's restoration of a harmonious situation that existed with God and man prior to Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the garden. Salvation through the death and resurrection and promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. And you and I are worried about a lot of things today, aren't we? You don't feel good enough. You don't feel like you know enough. You don't feel like you're obedient enough. Let me just tell you, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for you. I'll close with this thought. Martin Luther once spoke the following words to a man who was depressed and worried about life. He said, man, what are you doing? Can you think of nothing else but your sins and dying and damnation? Turn your eyes away and direct them to Christ. Cease to fear and lament. You really have no reason for it. If Christ were not here and had not done this for you, you would have reason to fear. But he is here. He has suffered death for you. He has secured comfort and protection for you. Now he sits at the right hand of his heavenly father to intercede for you. And I'll tell you today, believer, you are free in Christ. You are being transformed according to the gospel. You do not see Jesus right now, but you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Worship the Lord Jesus. Throw your whole soul upon him. Pour everything out to him in worship. Look forward to the day that when Revelation 15.3 is the only thing on your mind. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, 
Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you that Jesus Christ is Lord. You are great, Lord. May your peace rule in our hearts. May your word dwell richly in us. And may we worship you with every ounce of our being. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.